Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, muscle definition is just simple. It's just less body fat. I mean, that's that's what you have to do. You have to get your body fat down if you want more definition. Um, I think the principles of of uh, for training for muscle mass or fat loss they're they're actually very similar. the The difference is is you're going to need a caloric deficit to really lose a substantial amount of fat and bring out that definition. And because of that caloric deficit, you're not going to be able to handle as much volume as you do in the phases where you're trying to build muscle, where you, you know, should be having a surplus of calories. So, you know, I, I don't believe that if you're building mass, it should be low reps and heavy weights only. And then if you're trying to get lean, you do high reps to failure and all that. Hi, I'm Pete McCall. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of the all about fitness podcast. That voice you just heard is the guest for this episode, author and Dr. Chad Waterbury. I'm going to go into the full introduction for Dr. Waterbury in a second. If you're looking for exercise and fitness information, if you want to know how to design exercise programs for strength, mobility, metabolic conditioning, I got you covered. Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple is my book where I teach you what you need to know to design the workout programs that will work for you. I've spent more than 15 years educating personal trainers all around the world, and in Smarter Workouts, I teach you what you need to know to design exercise programs for your needs. I may not be able to talk in an introduction for a podcast, but I do know how to write a book about exercise science. That's exactly what Smarter Workouts is. My second book, Ageless Intensity, High Intensity Workouts to Slow the Aging Process, Ageless Intensity will teach you how exercise, specifically high-intensity exercise, slows down aging. And it teaches you a number of workouts and exercises that you can use to enhance your quality of life by slowing down the aging process. Both Smarter Workouts and Ageless Intensity will be down available in the show notes. Follow the links below. But they're great resources to get you going on your exercise journey. The guest for this episode is Dr. Chad Waterbury. Dr. Waterbury is a physical therapist. He actually has a specialty in neurophysiology, and he's an instructor in the physical therapy program at the University of Southern California. Well, Dr. Chad took all of his information and wrote a great book called Elite Physique. It's what you need to know about the science of how to build a better body. Both Dr. Waterbury and I talk about the science of muscle growth and how to improve our definition as we get older, and it's possible. On this episode of All About Fitness, it's all about how you, yes you, can develop the elite physique you want with Dr. Chad Waterbury, a physical therapist and the author of Elite Physique. Today on All About Fitness, actually we're going to start, I don't know if we call it All About Fitness today, Doc, but I think we should call it All About Tom Brady. Today on All About Fitness, I'm speaking with uh, physical therapist and the author of Elite Physique, Dr. Chad Waterbury. How you doing today, Doc? I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here. Well, and we're just talking, and what I, what I want to do is hit record real quick because we're having a conversation before, it always, just for listeners, I always like to get to know a guest just for a minute or two before we hit record, but we're talking about Tom Brady. 
How remarkable is is Tom's accomplishments? I mean, with what he's been able to achieve, not just in his career, but since turning the age of 40 alone, how remarkable is what we're seeing right now? Oh, I don't think, I don't think we'll ever see anything like this again. As, as we were just talking about, like I was mentioning Colin Coward, he's got this, this segment on his show. It is so true. What he says, it's like, if you would sell, if you try to sell Tom Brady's story to like, a Hollywood studio, they'd be like, nah, this is, this is a little too far fetched. This is just not believable. I mean, where he was, he's drafted so far back in the, you know, so late in the draft. And then he comes in and he starts winning Super Bowls, and, and, you know, we all know the story, you know, with him and, but the, the coolest thing is the fact that he's 44, I think he's 44 years old and he is absolutely playing the best football of his career. I mean, that is, that is unbelievable. And, you know, what can, what else can be said about the guy that hasn't been said a hundred times, but it's just, I don't, I don't think we'll ever see anything like this in terms of his records, especially if he gets one more Super Bowl. but you know, that's, that's <laughs> the third that is the first lesson. Take care of your body. Cause we all know that Tom is someone who, I mean, he really, that's all he thinks about is like every little thing taking care of his body, making sure he fuels his body with just what it needs and avoids all the other stuff. And I, I don't, I couldn't have the discipline he does, but it just goes to show if you have that amount of discipline, what is possible? I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Well, on that note, what do you think it is about somebody like Tom? Because he is not, if you look at his pure athleticism, I would never, like, if we're, if we're having a discussion about the best athletes that we've ever seen, Kobe, Michael, and I'm talking pure athletes, people who are athletes, Bo Jackson, right, Deion Sanders, these guys are athletes. I would not put Tom anywhere close in the top 20 of being the best athletes, right? But I'd put him in the top of all, of all athletes, of all professional athletes for mindset. So what is it? what do you think is more important? Is it the mindset of having the desire to be good or be great or just having that innate natural athletic ability? What do you think is more important at that level? And you've worked with a number of professional athletes, so you've seen it pretty you've seen it up close, but at that level is it mindset, is it tenacity, or is it just pure physical ability? Well, it really depends on the sport and the position, but yeah, you made a lot of excellent points there. I mean, I wouldn't put Tom in the top 200 of <laughs> Of, of athletes, you're talking about athleticism, and he's my all-time favorite athlete. Um, it's it's a great point because, like, it, you, the NFL has the combine because they want to see how great the athlete is. I mean, Tom, he would probably do as bad as anyone in the combine right now. I mean, everyone would probably smoke him, maybe besides like a kicker, you know, might do worse or whatever, but. The points you brought up are so important because, um, you know, they say hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard, you know, and Tom is the epitome of that. And with a position like a quarterback, it's clear that if you have an amazing mindset and you're driven like he is and you really take care of your body, I mean, the sky is the limit. But that's why I said it depends on the athlete in the sport. If you're a high jumper, for instance, in the Olympics, I mean, you can have the strongest mind and dedication in the world, but that really comes down to pure, pure athleticism, you know, getting your body higher than anyone else. Whereas Tom found a way to use his limited athleticism and, and figure out how to maximize his team and his, and his, uh, job his his role for each play and just fit it in perfectly he's just the right balance of everything um you know he's a guy that if you would add 200 pounds to his squat or you know shave a half second off of his 40 probably wouldn't do anything for him because he's found a way to just use his his you know, let's, let's say limited athleticism compared to like these crazy running backs or someone like that to his advantage. And they built a team around it. And it's just, it's really remarkable to see. Well, it, it, it is. And, and what, what this what brings to mind as you're saying that is that exercise and training for a sport, the whole goal of exercise, in my opinion, is exercise designed to optimize your genetic potential. Would you agree? Because we all have a gen- we all we're all limited by what our body's going to allow us to do genetically, 
and exercise or training, whether it's for sport or for a specific outcome, just allows us to optimize and maximize our genetic potential. Is that something you would agree with or is there anything you'd offer uh, add to that? I would agree with that 100%. Um, in fact, there's a sidebar that I wrote in Elite Physique where I talk about um, more strength is not always better. And like the example I gave with Tom or I'll, I'll you know, give an example with like you take even a great running back, an amazing running back with with physical prowess, like out the wazoo, like someone like Derrick Henry or whatever. And if if you approach him like an athlete like that and say, all right, well, we need to keep getting you stronger. Like, I don't know what he can squat. I'm sure it's a ton. Let's say I got this special secret program that's going to put 100 more pounds on your squat if you do it, if you're tough enough to do it. Well, he's already steamrolling everyone you know he's so he's so big and fast and when you're just now it's like all right we need to do more and more strength training you're just going to start to wear out his body you know wear out his joints and what i teach to my, my students at usc like one of the first things i say in the class resistance training class that i teach is to preserve the athlete the best way you can and i know your question was just a general question. It can be athletes or non-athletes alike. It's just like, you know, at the end of the day, we're all God willing going to be 60, 70 years old. And we don't want to be someone. It's like, Oh my God, I have had to have, you know, hip replacement and shoulder replacement because I was just absolutely wrecking my body with so much load and, and volume and all that. And, you know, we really want to find that sweet spot. We want to become more efficient with our training. And that's what I really uh, talk about in elite physique, um, spending the least amount of time in the gym necessary to get the maximum benefit. So you can have a life outside the gym and preserve your joints and, uh, avoid making a lot of mistakes I made when I was younger. And a lot of my colleagues made when we were younger, where we just absolutely just destroy our joints with constant heavy training. I mean, we learned that that's not the optimal way to do it. Even if you can withstand it, your joints, meaning there's just better ways to build muscle and performance than doing it that way. Well, on that note, one of the questions I wanted to ask is what is one of the most common mistakes that people make when we train for physique? Obviously, as you just identified, using because we, we get this, I mean, we're Americans, right? If a little bit is good, then more must be better. So that gets us to that 800 pound squat, that 400 pound bench press, whatever that we think we need to do. But other than using excessive load when it might not be necessary, what are some common mistakes that people make when it comes to trying to use exercise to improve their physique? Um, I think one of the things is they get really caught up in a lot of the standard powerlifting moves, like a barbell bench press, for instance. Um, there's just something that stigma about, no, I got to do a barbell bench press because that's what powerlifters do. And that's what football players have done forever. And I have to get really, really strong and add tons of load to that or else I'm not going to build my chest and my physique to, you know, it's, it's optimal level or whatever, but that's, Definitely, definitely not the case. Um, you know, you want to use, I always say you want to choose exercises that overload the muscles more than the joints. And that's why there's, there's lots of different exercise variations in this book um, beyond the standard stuff, the standard barbell bench press, you know, and all that. But that's probably one of the biggest uh, misconceptions is that we need to do really heavy power lifts all the time to get the optimal physique. Yeah, no, I, I would agree 100% because I think too is especially once we get over probably over the age of 40 or 45, we can stay strong without necessarily having to go heavy with the, with the loading. And, and with that, you know, the, the, the one question I'd like to ask is like, what's the difference between exercise? If we're looking, because I think there's always an interesting debate, right? Is what's the difference if I'm looking to add muscle size, I'm looking to add mass versus I'm looking to improve definition, because those are two different outcomes. And, and how would you describe the difference, Chad, between exercise to add muscle size versus exercise to enhance muscle definition? Well, muscle definition is just simple. It's, it's less body fat. I mean, that's, that's what you have to do. You have to get your body fat down if you want more definition. Um, I think the principles of, of, uh, for training for muscle mass or fat loss 
they're they're actually very similar. The the difference is is you're going to need a caloric deficit to really lose a substantial amount of fat and bring out that definition. And because of that caloric deficit, you're not going to be able to handle as much volume as you do in the phases where you're trying to build muscle, where you you know should be having a surplus of calories. So, you know, I I don't believe that if you're building mass, it should be low reps and heavy weights only. And then if you're trying to get lean, you do high reps to failure and all that, even though that's how bodybuilders have done it for, for eons, you know, professional bodybuilders, they do it that way. But I think it's, I think that was misinterpreted um, in the sense that people thought, Oh, if you do high reps to fail, you're going to burn more fat than if you do heavier, lower rep weight training, let's say five or six reps per set. I think the reason they were doing that is because they were in such a caloric deficit for all those weeks or months that they couldn't lift heavy. They couldn't keep adding load. It was just easier to do lighter weights. It kept them from getting overtrained. And I think that's just by default, they wanted to keep lifting and yeah, the probably the, the muscle burn and pump and whatever when they were in a caloric deficit made them feel better from the high rep training. But I I don't think at all, and there's no research to show the high rep training will make you leaner, burn more fat at all. It's just, as I said, I think it was a necessity of being in a caloric deficit. Um, so that's how I'd answer that question. I, I never thought about that before, but I guess you're right. When somebody is training for a show and they're cutting carbohydrates and everything, they just wouldn't have the energy to they, they wouldn't have the energy to promote that muscle growth. I mean, I just yep. think that I had I'd never really thought about that before. And, and to take that a step further, because what I thought was great that you did in your book was, was you do a good job of describing the difference between sarcoplasmic hypertrophy and myofibular hypertrophy. And that kind of like that goes into kind of what we're talking about right now versus like heavy for fewer reps and lighter for for more reps. What is the difference between the two? And I'm talking about for list, for the listener out there, I'm talking about the difference between that that idea of sarcoplasmic hypertrophy versus the idea of hypertrophy for the individual myo, myofibrils. Could you talk about that a little bit and explain the difference of, of why we should pay attention to that with our exercise? Sure. So if we just keep in simple terms, let's just think of a muscle having two primary components. And this, this is not the case, but it'll help the listeners out there visualize this. Inside the muscle, we have the muscle fibers, those proteins. And then surrounding it, like if you think of your muscle as a balloon, you have, if, if, if your muscle is a, like your biceps, imagine it's a balloon. So inside of that balloon, you have the muscle fibers, the proteins that contract all right, that shorten that muscle. And then surrounding it inside that balloon is a bunch of um, um, liquid, liquid-esque, plasma-esque, you know, um, components, gel-like components. So in there. So there's the actual contractile muscle fiber things that the mechanics, the mechanical structures that shorten it. And then there's the surrounding structures that's like water in a balloon. So when you train hard and heavy and go to failure and all that, you get growth of the actual muscle fibers, which makes the muscle bigger. Um, that is the myofibular hypertrophy. But there's also evidence of the, 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 the water space, we'll call it, expanding. So that is like adding more water to a balloon, right? It gets bigger, it stretches more. That is uh, the sarcoplasm. So it's called sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. Um, now it's, that's controversial. We don't know actually if it exists. It's not, it's not really clear. I mean, the last research I was doing for this book, it wasn't really clear. So I actually don't like to put too much of an emphasis on that. But the, the idea though is, it's like, yeah, you can get the muscle can get larger without the fibers getting larger. And we know this just even from uh, carb and water loading and all that. If you are super dehydrated and been on a low carb diet and then you start eating a bunch of carbs and drinking a lot of water, like the next day, you're like, wow, like I'm getting bigger. <laughs> well, it's just because your muscle is swelling up, you know, with the fluid. And that's a good thing. Um, there's there's maybe some evidence that that swelling can help trigger um, muscle growth or anabolism in the muscle, but 
again, it's, 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 we're not sure. So as I said, I don't like to put too much emphasis on that, but the bottom line is, you know, regardless, you want to do high rep training to failure, which used to be just associated with sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, but we know that that's, you know, not the case. High reps to failure can build as much muscle mass as um, heavier low rep training. So that's why, like in my book, the programs, you have lots of different rep range protocols uh, that will equally build muscle. The difference though is strength. If you want maximal strength, doing sets of 30 or 35 to failure like you would do in a push-up is not going to do much for your maximal strength. Whereas if you're doing the, the heavier lower rep training, five or six reps per set, you will get the muscle growth and you will get the maximal strength gains. So it just depends on what your primary focus is. No, and I appreciate that answer. And you're right. I mean, what we know about the body is all theoretical. <laughs> and I always point that out. I mean, this is that stage. That if listeners played bingo to my, my podcast episodes, this is that part where they'd mark the bingo card where Pete talks about, hey, all research is just based on what we observe for this one study. And we really don't. There's a lot more that we don't know than we do know. But but a reason why I like to bring that up is because there is a difference. And you just explained it so well. There is a difference between training lighter load for higher volume and training heavier load for heavier load for um, less volume, meaning less reps and less sets. Now, on that note, how often should, because this kind of goes in the same thread, but how often should we look at, at, at making changes to our workout programs? Like how often should I train with heavier weight for fewer reps and then transition maybe to a lighter weight, higher rep scheme? Like in theory, like how long, how often should we change our workouts up? Well, there's actually two questions there. The, the first, the, you can look at it as how often should we train heavy and then how often should we change our workouts? Well, I like to, I believe that um, at least for me and my athletes and non-athletes, that the principles in place um, that I have for designing uh, training sessions and, des and designing a, a training program is to have as much variety as possible while still staying within these basic principles of program design. Like for instance, full body training is what I prefer. And a full body training, the simplest definition is an upper body pull, an upper body push, and some lower body squat or deadlift variation. Now I prefer to have different exercises throughout the week. So if you're training three full body workouts a week, each session is gonna be a different hmm. exercise. And then I usually have some sort of knee dominant on one day and, and uh, hip dominant the next and all that. Um, I don't want to get in too many different variations of that. But the point is, is I like to design programs where there's constantly different exercises being brought in. Like the next workout is completely different exercises than the one you just did. And that really helps stave off um, stagnation, plateaus, all that. Now, there's a lot of people out there who will stick with the same exercises, like a squat, a barbell squat, for instance, they'll do it two or three times a week, maybe with different lowered or whatever. And that's, you know, that, that can work, but I just, I think the variety is better to preserve your joints. I think the variety is better to, as I said, offset um, stagnation. And um, I just see no reason to not change things as frequently as possible without getting crazy again, to stay within certain principles. Cause you, you know, you just don't want to go in blind every day and just be like, I, you know, I did a hundred reps sets yesterday and today I'm going to do a one rep max. And there has to be, it's, it's, you need some sort of structure in there, but generally speaking about every um, four to six weeks, things it's it's beneficial to drastically change things um or i don't want to use drastically that just significantly change things so if your monday workout um was always for four weeks was always like a chin up dip and deadlift then the next with with for five sets of five reps for instance then the next um four weeks that monday workout you can still have similar movements so a chin up is a vertical pull. So instead of doing um, uh, a chin up or um, let's say a, a hammer grip pull up, you do a wide overhand grip pull up. And instead of doing the dip, you do like an incline bench press. And instead of doing a deadlift uh, with conventional stance with the barbell, you'll do um, 
RDL with dumbbells, for instance, or a stagger stance RDL. So this is, gets to what I was saying before. Same principle. It's still an upper body pull, upper body push, and a, and a hip emphasis exercise. But, you know, you're changing it about every four weeks or so. That's how I uh, wrote the programs in that book. They change every four weeks, like each 12-week program or 16-week program. Every four weeks, you're getting new exercise variations into the same sort of principles and structure that follows the, the goal of that program. No, and I love that because yeah, we need we need consistency, but we need variety, and that and therein becomes the the paradox, right? Of exercise is we need some consistency for the body to make adaptations, but then we also need variety just so the muscles are working a little bit differently. And and one of the things, obviously, and I'm biased. I am very biased towards movement based exercises. For years, I've thought in terms of push, pull, rotation, hinge, that that thought process. But in your experience, what is the benefit of doing these compound movements, as you describe in the book, versus joint isolation? Is there do, do joint are, are joint isolation exercises? Do they put excessive stress on the joints when compared to compound movements? Why, why do you select in, in your book? Why do you talk about the compound movements as opposed to the isolation? Well, I like compound movements because you're, it's just more efficient. You're stimulating more muscle groups um, with a single exercise than splitting it up into three different isolation exercises. So let's just take uh, a one-arm row, for instance, um, with just a, a, a hammer grip, uh, a heavy one-arm row. It's terrific for your biceps. It's terrific for your lats and it's terrific for your rhomboids. So one exercise, you get all benefit through all three of those muscle groups, or you could isolate them. You know, you could do instead to get the biceps, you do a, a like a one arm biceps curl to hit the lats. You could do like a straight arm lat pull down to hit the rhomboids. You could do like a reverse fly, something like that. Um, but now you have to do three exercises instead of one. And then there's the whole, you know, argument that is a compound movement pulling pattern, like a rowing pattern is a very, you know, the word functional, you know, just a very true to life movement that you have to do a lot compared to like a bent over, you know, rear delt or bent over like reverse fly, like how often do you do that in life, you know, or something like that, or even like a straight arm lat pull down. All those exercises have their place and I, I really use those more for my HFT protocols, but I just like, I like compound movements because A, they're more efficient and B, they have a, a higher metabolic cost, meaning it's just more challenging, it's more demanding to do um, a goblet squat than it is to do a leg extension. You know, you do like 20 goblet squats, or 25 goblet squats to failure. I mean, your heart is racing. Whereas like you do, um, you know, a leg curl, leg extension to failure. Yeah, it'll get your heart rate, heart rate, you know, going, but not nearly as much. And I don't think it has nearly the carryover into sport in the real world as like a squatting pattern would. But to, I, the other thing I want to say is isolation exercises. There's a lot of them in that book because they're great for when you choose the right ones. They're great for overloading the muscle more than the joint, which is what's really necessary for the high frequency training, the HFT protocols I have in there when you're building, uh, bringing up a lagging muscle group and you can't be doing exercises that are beating up the joints. And there's a lot of great isolation exercises and some of them just require your body weight or just a band or whatever. And they work extremely well, but I wanna be clear that this is on top of the other three full body workouts you're doing throughout the week where you're getting the heavier loads and the compound movements and all that. See, I, I and I like that. I like this conversation because I have to admit, I am completely biased against. If I'm doing a program, if I'm putting a program together, I always look at the patterns, right? Push, pull, rotations. We're talking about, and I always personally, I'm always entertained when when I'm at a gym and I'm at a large commercial gym, and I'm watching people in there, and you're seeing somebody like hanging almost upside down. They're they're trying to isolate like one muscle, and they're trying. And, you know, that's for me. That's entertaining because it's like if you're walking on a stage. I understand, and you're two to four weeks out from a show. I understand the need to be very particular with trying to isolate muscles, 
But for most of us, they're just trying to look a little bit better and just trying to get a good workout in and go back to our daily lives. I just don't see the efficient, you know what I mean? I, I just don't see that as the most efficient use of our time in the gym. Meaning if I only have an hour to work out, I'm trying to blast as, I'm trying to work as many tissue, I'm trying to work as much muscle as much tissue as possible, as opposed to trying to isolate a specific muscle. And, and where, where, where do you come down on that whole idea about, you, you talk about it a little bit, but I just want to kind of drive this point home for listeners, because I, I want listeners to be as efficient as possible in the gym. So if you could talk about the need, when would you have a client work on isolation versus an integrated or compound movement? I would do it like I mentioned before when they're trying to bring up a lagging body part. I would just, you know, like, for instance, imagine someone, the, a guy doesn't like his calf size, right? The size of his calves. So um, he would do his three full body workouts a week to get all the size and strength gains, you know, through his body. But that is uh, as opposed to using part of that 45 minutes or hour for his full body training, you know, doing some calf raises in there, which you know, would help, but it's, it's not going to be enough to bring them up uh, the size of them. Then later in the day, uh, like at night before bed or whatever, I'd have him do um, a set of calf raises, just one legged calf raises standing on the floor to failure with each leg, you know, every night before bed or whatever. That's, that's when they really come into play. Same thing, like with the biceps or the triceps, like the the, the band press down using a big long resistance band and doing press downs with that. It's really great for the triceps um, because it, it spares the elbow joints as opposed to like a skull crusher or something like a skull crusher is it's great for or lying uh, for, for people who don't know maybe what a skull crusher is. It's just, it's you're lying on the back on the bench and it's um, your arms straight up overhead and you're just working your triceps. You're just, you know, flexing extended at the elbows, uh, but you can do it with dumbbells or skull crushers with the easy curl bar or whatever. But the point though is, is that that's a great exercise and powerlifters have been using it forever to help with their bench press and get their, their triceps stronger and, and bigger, but you cannot do that six days per week without absolutely wrecking your elbows. So it gets back to the point where you have to choose your HFT exercises, your isolation exercises wisely. And one thing that I really like, I talk about in the book is the, the band, the, the standing triceps extension using a band, because it's one of those exercises where the tension of the band matches the strength curve of the exercise. And the strength curve is just mm. a, a, a technical way of saying how strong you are in any joint position. You know, anyone who's done a triceps extension knows that you're stronger as the elbow, as the arm is straightening, as the elbow is extending, as the elbow is about to lock out. You're a lot stronger there than you are when your elbow is bent. And that's perfect because when your elbow is bent is when there's the least amount of resistance through the band. And when your arm is straight or is when your arm is extending, you're getting more and more tension from the band. So it's a really cool exercise in that sense. And it's it's pretty easy on the elbows as well. So, you know, your original question was when would I use isolation exercises? That's when I would do it. But the core of the training program to just build overall size and strength, there's very few isolation exercises in it for the, the reason you said we want to be as efficient as possible with our training. The big sort of slam against um, compound multi-joint exercises when someone just wanted pure aesthetics is like, yeah, well, you do a, a row, but, you know, it's not going to be great for your biceps development or something, some argument they're going to make. You have to isolate it to get it, to get it bigger for your heavy training. And, and there's a, a certain amount of um, validity to that argument, but I get around that then by programming different, in this case, horizontal pulls variation throughout the week. So, um, then that will hit those muscle fibers that you might be missing with just having a compound exercise. Hopefully that makes sense, right? So again, the, the knock against compound exercise is that you maybe can't hit all the fibers or get, you know, uh, uh, pierced, you know, stimulation of the entire muscle group, like something like the lats or the glutes, a really big muscle group, um, the hamstrings, something like that. But you get around that again by using 
different exercises that overload those muscles. So it hits each one slightly different overloads, you know, certain aspects more than the other variations. So you put all three variations together in a week and your three exercises throughout three, sorry, three workouts throughout the week. Each workout has a different movement pattern for that muscle group. Mm. Then you have complete development of the muscle fibers. But where HFT comes in is sometimes with lagging muscle groups, hitting it three times per week is not enough. And that's what I tell people to do outside of your workouts. You can do these simple um, sets at home using body weight or a band or whatever to get that muscle to um, uh, be exposed to a higher training frequency, which, you know, we there's tons of empirical and you just need to look around to know that, if you train a muscle more often in an intelligent way, it's it, it will get bigger provided it can recover. I mean, when you look at any athlete in any sport that overloads that muscle group, you know, boxers with their deltoids, swimmers with their lats, you know, soccer players with their calves. I mean, you could go on and on. I mean, cyclists with their thighs. I mean, you won't see a world champion speed skater, cyclist or downhill skier that doesn't have enormous quads. So, you know, it's, and, and they are trained, they are not simulating those muscle groups two or three times a week. That's for sure. They're practicing, you know, six days a week, they're lifting, you know, all that, but the muscle, you know, they, they do it over the course of many months and years and they build up to that capacity to have all that volume and the muscle will grow. And that's where the principles of HFT come from. Just, it only takes you a few minutes at home, but to just do a quick set, to stimulate that muscle group, uh, high rep set the failure because we don't want to do heavy weights or things that's going to wear out the joints. So this is when high rep training the failure becomes a uh, very effective and important addition to your training program is when you're trying to build up lagging body parts. Well, on, the, on that note, using your physical therapist hat, what exercises are commonly done in the gym that you think we should maybe take a, a different look at? And I'm thinking, where, 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 the reason why I'm asking this is, as we get a little bit older, into our 40s and our 50s and even our 60s, obviously we're dealing with some issues like arthritis. And, and, and exercise is much better for an arthrit arthritic joint than no exercise. But are there any exercises out there that you feel that we should maybe take a second look at or, or, or reconsider doing in our program because they might be be worse for our joints than we than we realize yeah well almost every barbell exercise would fit into that category mm. um it's but especially the power lifts like a barbell bench press i mean i know guys love it but it's just it's not it's not optimal for the shoulders you can get the same strength and size building effect if not better with without the barbell. I mean, just simply using dumbbells instead of a barbell is so much better because what a barbell does is it locks the wrist. The wrist can't rotate and your wrist want to rotate on virtually everything you do, whether you're pressing overhead, whether you're doing a bench press, you're doing a curl, all this stuff. And it might be just subtle, subtle rotations that the wrists want to move uh, you don't even realize it. Like you think, um, just think of a barbell bench press. It's like, how much does my wrist have to move on that? You know, it's just this vertical straight up and down pattern, but that's not the case. I mean, we're all asymmetrical to begin with. Uh, the left and right, there's always differences between it. And based on posture, based on maybe uh, a previous injury, anatomical factors, there's a million different things that can be at play that if we would look at, someone doing now a dumbbell bench press and we look at it closely do a biomechanical analysis we'd see that oh the left see how his left hand wants to rotate a little bit more when he pushes up than the right hand um same thing with pressing overhead all these different options i can uh, examples i can give but the point here is is that when the wrist can't move freely then you have stress going to your elbows and when you have stress going to your elbows, then you're eventually going to have a problem with your shoulder. Um, so the main thing that I would say is I love the barbell for, uh, you know, a deadlift, of course, you know, we, that's, that's fine. But when it comes to upper body exercises, I think 
any upper body exercise with a barbell is not optimal. There's always going to be, in my mind, a better option, either using dumbbells or using bands or using your body weight with bands or, or whatever. Like, for instance, go back to the bench press. If you don't have um, uh, someone who, who likes to do the barbell bench press, wants to do that pattern, and I, you know, he's like, well, my shoulders are really hurting, but I want a real challenging like push-up variation. Then, you know, you take a thick resistance band, you wrap it across your upper back, you know, over your shoulder blades, you loop each end around your palm and you do push-ups that way. And that, like the triceps exercise I was talking about, it's, it's accommodating resistance, meaning it matches the strength curve. As you push up, the band starts to stretch and it gets more and more tension on it. But as you push up, you're naturally stronger. So that's a great exercise. I have many super strong athletes are, are very challenged with that exercise. It's just a matter of having enough bands to wrap around. If you have enough bands, I mean, you get a 500 pound NFL bench presser and he's going to be, you know, absolutely worked with that exercise. And the cool thing about that is now we have the whole anterior chain is activated. Unlike in a bench press. Now, when you're in the push-up position and you're pushing up really hard against all this resistance, your abs, your core muscles, they have to fire really hard to stabilize your trunk and your pelvis and all that. And that's a terrific thing. That just makes your core stronger and it's a great carryover to sport and, and helps you know protect your back and all this. So I could give lots of examples, but that's, that's the main one that comes to mind. Any upper body exercise with the barbell, I think is not optimal. I, I love the way you broke that down because, and I do think, especially for, for those of us guys over the age of 40 or 45, unless you're trying out for the high school football team or unless you're trying out for a college football team, the bench press just ain't that important anymore. And you don't, and, and I would rather have somebody do push-ups to fatigue or TRX push-ups fatigue because you get more range of motion through the shoulder girl. You get more, I mean, it's just, there's so many reasons why that's healthier. Now, looking at the time, I want to respect your time. One of the things I like that you did in Elite Physique Doc is, is that you really talk about nutrition because you make a point that nutrition is critical for achieving that physique. Now, in your in your opinion, in your experience, what are one or two of the common mistakes that we make with nutrition as we're trying to work towards a better physique? Um, oh, boy, where do I begin? That's such a huge question. Um, Sorry about that. I, I would say, so the, the first thing I try to always get right is, uh, and I'm talking with athletes, non-athletes, patients I work with, is to get the protein intake. Because we know, I mean, the research is very clear. You have to have adequate protein intake um, for an optimal metabolism and for uh, growth and repair. So one thing that I commonly see is uh, a guy will be like, all right, look, I'm eating a lot of food. It's high quality food. I'm training hard, but I'm just not really growing a lot of muscle. And I'm like, okay, what are you eating? Well, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm even staying away from gluten. You know, I'm just having fruits and vegetables and beans and rice and some fish here and there and avocado. And, you know, and then I'm, I'm listening. I'm like, okay. Um, so some fish here and there, what does that mean? It's like, oh, you know, I fish like three times a week. How much fish do you have? Oh, about four ounces or so. And I'm like, okay, what are your other protein sources? Oh, I'll have uh, eggs for breakfast. Oh, how many eggs do you have? Oh, usually one or two. And then, um, you know, well, what do you have for dinner, you know, for protein? Oh, I have uh, like, you know, some beans, rice and beans, you know, all that stuff. Cause I heard that if you have rice and beans, you combine that, it's a complete protein. So I think, you know, where I'm going with this. And then I start doing the math. I'm like, okay, two eggs for this guy is 210 pounds. And, you know, he wants to lose fat. He's like 20% body fat. And he wants to gain more muscle and strength. And I'm adding this up and he's having like um, 50 grams of protein a day. And he thinks he's, you know, he's, he is eating healthy in the sense that he's not eating processed foods and all this stuff. But, but the biggest thing is like people think they're getting adequate protein, but they're really not when you break it down. So it's really important to know how much protein is in the, the serving size of the fish or the beef or the chicken you're eating and how much protein is in one egg, which is usually about seven grams of protein per egg. Um, so you know, if you, if you want 30 grams of protein, 30 to 35 grams of protein in a meal, um, and you're just going to get it from eggs, 
like at breakfast, I mean, you're going to need to eat six or seven eggs. And people are like, oh my God, they're like, their mind is blown. It's like, oh, I could never eat that much or whatever. I'm like, you don't have to eat that many eggs, but you have to get that much protein for breakfast. So you can have three eggs, which is about 21 grams of protein. And then you can have like three ounces of chicken breast, which is like another, you know, 20 ounces of protein or whatever. Um, so that is the biggest thing that I often see uh, they don't get adequate protein. So that's one of the first things I talk about um, in the book when I talk about the rules of building muscle. And that's one of the key rules is to have adequate protein intake. And then, you know, people make it too complicated. Really, if, if people would get adequate protein from healthy sources like grass-finished beef and wild fish and organic chicken and organic turkey, and they had the optimal amount, which is about um, like point, let's just call it like 0.7 grams per pound of body weight. So if, if you're a 200 pound person, you're going to need about 140 grams of, part of protein um, uh, per day. And there's nuances in that as I talk about. But if you get that, that you meet your protein requirement through healthy food sources, and then you eat just fruits and vegetables outside of it. And that's, that's it. It doesn't matter how much or just, you know, what combination it would solve so many problems in terms of like your, your recovery be so much better. You'd look and feel so much better. You'd be losing fat, even though you're having carbs, you know, and all that. It's really is as simple as that. But at the end of the day, most people aren't going to do that. So then we have to figure out, okay, what will you do? You know, and then we got to figure out that happy medium in there to break down nutrition in a way that's easy to follow and people will adhere to it. And that's why I spent so much time talking about nutrition because I help you figure out how to solve those problems. And to me, that was what was so important in the book is you're not just talking about you're not just talking about the exercise we need to do, but you talk about how to support those exercises with the intake. And I think a lot of people overlook that. Well, I know we got it. We got uh, coming up on a hard stop here, doctor. So Dr. Chad Waterbury, the, the book is Elite Physique. Where can people get more information about this? And you have a number of other books out as well, right? Yeah, I do. But you can get Elite Physique on Amazon. And then in terms of my social media on Instagram, uh, it's just my name with a doctor in front of it. So DR and then Chad Waterbury on Instagram. And I, I try to get on there and post some stuff. So, but yeah, Elite Physique, it's available on Amazon. You can get the hard copy version or there's a Kindle version as well. Hey, well, Doc, I appreciate the work you're doing and I appreciate your time today. Thanks for spending a little bit of time to tell us what we can do to work on our physique. So appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, Pete. Hey, that was a great conversation. Just to let you know, Dr. Waterbury wrote his book using the same publisher I did. That's how we got connected. And when I saw that, I'm like, oh, this is awesome. I look at this, right? I've talked about this just because it's January. Honestly, the only thing that to me, the only thing about January just means the gyms are a little bit more crowded for a while. But January should be no different than March. March should be do, no different than July. July should be no different than October. The point is we should be active all year long. The point is we should be active every day. It doesn't mean we need to do high intensity exercise every day. In fact, we should not. We should only be doing intense workouts or high intensity workouts two or three times a week. The other days, if we do two or three high-intensity workouts, the other workouts should be low to moderate intensity, but we should be trying to train every day. Now, you heard me talk a little bit about, um, you heard me talk a little bit about the beginning, about we were talking about Tom Brady, we're both about the same age, and, and then we recorded this right after another, another weekend where Tom did some spectacular things on the football field, and I want to qualify for something for a second because... I said this in the beginning, and I'm going to explain what I mean now, and then we'll wrap it up. But Tom Brady is not a great athlete. I'll say that. Tom Brady is not a great athlete. Tom Brady is probably the best football player who's ever lived. I mean, he's been in the league for 20 years. I think he's been to the Super Bowl 50% of the years he's been in the league. So his numbers are outstanding, are amazing. Nobody is ever going to come close to repeating and accomplishing everything that Tom Brady has accomplished. But again, I'm going to go down and say that Tom Brady's not a great athlete, but he is the best football player. And I'll explain that. So athleticism is having the ability to control and move your body. Athleticism is speed, grace, 
coordination, power, explosiveness, mobility, body awareness, control, the psychology of how do you focus on what you need to do to win. Now, so many of these attributes Tom has, if I only had 45 seconds, if, if I needed anybody in the world to save my life in the last minute of a game, I, Tom Brady would be the first choice because he's done it so many times. Now, would I pick Tom Brady as a choice to represent me in, in, in feats of athleticism? <laughs> Not at all, right? But if there's a chance to prepare, if there's a chance to study, if there's a chance to review what an opponent does, to find an opponent's weaknesses, and develop a game plan to play to your strengths, yeah, Tom Brady's the best, hands down. But if you're looking at pure athleticism, the ability to run at a fast pace, change direction, accelerate, decelerate, to do all those things, eh, Tom ain't going to crack my top 20. He might not even crack my top 50, right? And there's a difference because you can be a great competitor. And that's what Tom is. Tom is probably one of the best competitors in the world. When he steps on the field, he doesn't want to just win. He wants to win and own you. Kobe Bryant, rest his soul was the same way. Kobe was an assassin. He wanted to, He just didn't want to win. He wanted to embarrass you. Michael Jordan was the same way. Now, Michael and Kobe were phenomenal athletes. Mr. Brady lacks that athleticism. But I just wanted to qualify that just because somebody might have heard that. I go, wait, Tom, I firmly believe Tom is the best football player we've seen, we're ever going to see. But there's a difference. You can be a great, you can be great in an individual sport that requires preparation, focus, and training but doesn't necessarily mean you're a good athlete. Being a good athlete is a lot of different things. So I want to explain that a little bit. And here's the thing. Lifting weights does not require a lot of athleticism. <laughs> Pushing a lever on a machine, lifting a weight up and down, ain't that athletic. And that's the thing. We can all get better. We can all add muscle. We can use strength training. We can use metabolic conditioning. We can use mobility. We can all make improvements as we get older, as we get better. And that, that's the one thing that I wanted you to hear this conversation. It doesn't matter where you are now. The fact is, if you follow the advice in Dr. Waterbury's book, if you follow Elite Physique, you too can change your physique and get the body that you want. You can also do that by picking up my book, Smarter Workouts and Ageless Intensity. You can go to my website, PeteMcCallFitness.com. Got a lot of information up there. Hey, I got a lot of resources available to you. The whole goal is to try to help you learn how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. That's it. That's the goal. You can do that by listening to the podcast. You can do that by going to my website. That's free. That's free. You can pick up a copy of my books. It doesn't cost you a lot. And you get a great resource for ongoing. But don't worry. I'll always be here for you. And you can go to, go to my Instagram and YouTube pages, All About Fitness Podcasts on Instagram and YouTube. And as always... Thank you for stopping by, and I do look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.